Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Bradley, and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. January and February are the months of the year when all sorts of associations start writing love letters to the Federal Treasury and trying to explain how they see the world and what they want from government in the coming 12 months. Amongst those uh, groups are the professional accounting bodies, and, and I'm fortunate to be talking to Gavin Ord, who's the senior policy advisor with CPA Australia, to look at some of the issues that CPA Australia thinks are important and that the government ought to be paying attention to. Gavin, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, the, the, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, one of the things that uh, we need to note here is that CPA Australia just doesn't look at the plain accounting uh, issues, whether it be tax or audit, it looks more broadly, doesn't it, when it frames its uh, it, its pre-budget submission? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Tom. So for us, it's the over... Obviously, the, the member interest is our, is our primary concern within the, the parameters of the public interest. So in this pre-budget submission, we sharpened our pencil and we focused in on a few issues, uh, supporting business and NFP capability building, uh, climate change, uh, skills and worker shortages, um, regulatory reform, and uh, economic transformation. Okay, and I know, uh, and, and also there's some trend. The submission's also very much on trend in terms of climate change action and, and, and a range of uh, range of issues related to uh, climate reporting as well. That's right. So climate change is, is a critical issue for the economy and it's a critical issue for our members. Accountants are going to play a very important role in climate change and ESG. Uh, accountants are out there not just doing the assurance and the disclosure, but they're also intimately involved in the measurement of emissions and the measurement of um, other social and governance environmental issues. So our members are really going to have to play a really big role as we transition to um, renewable energy and net zero. Yeah, that's part, but that, that in part is also uh, something that involves a lot of upskilling and retraining and, and, and re, yeah. re, recalibrating university programs to get that right. Now, one of the issues that we that I wanted to talk to you about was the first part of the submission, looking at business support and... Uh, not for profit, not for profits uh, as well. Um, you use that magical word incentivizing small business uh, in a particular context, being accessing advice. What are the problems in terms of accessing advice at the moment at that end? Look, yeah. So the the issue, <coughs> excuse me, the issue primarily is that. As businesses get into trouble, difficulty, they actually become less likely to engage with their accountant, less likely to engage with their bank, less likely to engage with the ATO and other regulators. And as they become less likely to engage, they're more likely to get themselves into trouble and they're more likely to find that when the, the proverbial hits the fan, they have limited range of options. In fact, often it's a creditor that ends up making the decision on the future of a business. If we can get, if we can incentivize those businesses, particularly those in difficulty, 
to get access to advice. The range of options open for them to potentially restructure or, or even to close with or exit with grace is much greater. But businesses that access advice and access advice regularly are much more likely to succeed. We know that from our own data. Uh, and so we need to try and get those that aren't accessing advice to try and get go and speak to their accountant, their bookkeeper, their lawyer, their IT consultant, because we know that will actually lead to better outcomes for that business. Whether that's you know, a restructure, whether that's another approach to business, whether that's a change in business model, that's really up to them. But that is the, one of the best ways to build business capability to manage through this challenging period and to address this issue of people just stopping to engage, uh, just not engaging with the system. What's the best way of, of, of government incentivising people? Are you, are you wanting a, an advocacy campaign, but an ad campaign or, or, or funding for professional bodies to, to, to effectively provide some pro bono initial advice? Where are you at? So we, we think the best approach is what Victoria did in August, September last year. So they, they gave eligible businesses $2,500 for those businesses, I think, sorry, it's $2,000 for those businesses to go off and spend it with an approved provider. So there's no necessary restrictions. It was about they had to, had to go to an approved provider, which was generally their accountant, and then they would use that money to get advice on a certain range of issues like cash flow, like business uh, manage, business process improvement. So we, we think give the money to the business for the business to then choose how best to use that money. Well, there's a, in that same section, you talk about the digitising of small businesses and trying to get people to trust IT a bit more. Um, how are you... Where are you positioning yourselves on that in this pre-budget submission? Yeah, so every year we do an Asia-Pacific small business survey. So we look at how businesses across the region, small businesses across the region are performing. And maybe there's a future podcast for us as well. But a key thing that keeps coming out of that survey and has done for over 10 years is Australian small businesses are a long way behind in the digital adoption compared to businesses in Asia. And that is actually impacting their ability to, to grow. So that's sort of where we're, we're concerned about the ability of Australian small businesses to grow because of their, their they are digital laggards, digital dinosaurs in comparison to many other larger businesses and small businesses across the region. Now we know that um, the last government and this government supported the introduction of a technology investment boost, which is sort of a 120% tax deduction for every, every dollar they spend on technology. And that soon expires. Those things are helpful, but we also think that could be complemented by something that's a little bit more direct. So again, the Victorian government introduced a, a rebate where if you used a particular technology, they would provide a $1,200 rebate to those businesses. So it's a little bit more directional. And when our members talk to business, they often find that businesses, they're overwhelmed by choice. So if you just say to a business, go and spend on technology, 
well, they, they actually don't know where to start. But if you say to business, go and spend on this technology, it's a little bit more helpful because they know, oh, okay, I've, that might be more beneficial. So we think that that's technology investment boost that's currently there could be complemented by a more directional campaign where they might provide, say, a rebate to chosen technology, approved technology. Would the um, approval of said technology, say it's product specs Y and Z, uh, be dependent also on their uh, on the cyber security um, yeah. element of that, because that's a major issue at the moment with people being concerned about whether their systems are going to be hacked into yeah. by somebody in deepest, darkest, whatever country in... Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I, I'm glad you say that because this is one of the benefits of government choosing particular technologies is that we would expect that the cyber security of that particular technology is actually checked by the government for before they pass on, they give it their tick. So that then sort of addresses that issue. And we know from other research that concerns about cyber security do actually impact um, businesses' willingness to invest in technology. So I think one of the benefits is that the if a government has ticked off on a particular technology, they've checked the cyber security of that, of that product. Gavin, your submission looks at uh, areas of reducing regulatory pressure and, and that, that the first bullet point looks at improving stakeholder engagement. Um, we've seen that um, in the news recently in terms of government engagement and, and some of the problematic aspects, but you know, what's important in your view, to, to ensuring government gets what it needs from people? What does it need to be doing? I think the main thing is to consult. And need, they need to consult. They need to consult with um, the community, with experts in a public way. And obviously on the other side, those who are consulting need to treat that with respect as well and follow the conditions of the consultation. Uh, Consultation, as you know, from your previous life, leads to better outcomes, leads to better policy outcomes, leads to better implementation and leads to early identification of issues. So uh, regular consultation is very important. But the, the other thing that we've noticed is that um, governments, particularly new governments, are obviously very, very enthusiastic and they often go off and try and do probably too much. And the people there, and so they they often find it very difficult consultations that are going on. And that can lead to ne negative outcomes. Okay, one of the one of the other criticisms uh, in terms of policy design and implementation. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, one of the other uh uh, issues though with consultation um and we op we will see this from time to time is that um uh, there might be a pol uh, policy position set in place and um occasionally 
uh, consultation can be performative. Uh, had there been a, a, a risk of that in your experience in recent years? Um, look, one, one, look, there's always going to be situations where consultations go ahead and the parties don't agree on the outcome, so governments have to make a choice. Um, that happens regularly. And obviously when you go to consultations, the consultation is you don't know what, you never really get 100% of what you ask for. You, mm -hmm. And often the result is to try and, try and make a, a bad situation bearable. Um, and often that's what we end up with, something that's bearable um, and yeah, we can live with. So it's, it's an ongoing situation that relies on good relationships, trusted relationships uh, on all sides and just regular engagement and being constructive. Like, as you know, Tom, you've got to be constructive. You can't just go there with the complaints. You've got to go there with potential solutions and be willing to compromise. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, and uh, one of the things in my past experience that, that still resonates to this day is that when you're prepared to talk to a government department about a broad range of policy options in an area and then explain why it is that there's one particular option that, that you favour, that's received more uh, positively than if you just go in and say, this is the this is the answer. This is the only option, and we're not we're not talking any further about anything else. Yeah, that, that exactly. You're exactly right, Tom. That sort of approach doesn't work. Um, but I will also note that um, what we're seeing is there's quite a few public servants new, new to consultation, um, and they sometimes struggle with the concept and how to do it. So this is why we're talking about the need to. Uh, improve the standard of consultation um, from within the public service. And obviously with some of those recent examples, there's also a need to improve the standard of consultation from, from our side as well. It, it, but it's a learning so, process. And we think that, yeah, it's a learning process. Yeah, it's a learning process for both sides, isn't it? Because you, you, yeah. you're getting in, if you're... Um, the one being consulted, you're learning more from the interaction in terms of the mindset of government and what they might like and might not like, and the government's actually learning a bit more about your sector yes. and whether or not they've got it um, anywhere near right. Yeah. And that, 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 that's an, the natural tension between... Um, uh, people in certain sectors in the government, but that's necessary. Yeah, exactly. That is a healthy tension and that's important. And part of the consultation is all parties have to understand that we're not necessarily going to come to 100% agreement on all issues. But I think there's, there's scope for governments to improve how they consult using digital technologies more and also to be conscious of running too many consultations consecutively or or at the same time actually impacts the ability of uh, people like us to contribute meaningfully. 
Now, it, it, you talk about regulatory reforms for the not-for-profit and charity sectors in your, your, your submission. What are the key things that you're asking for there? So asking for things around fundraising reforms. So um, while there has been some movement around fundraising reforms, there are some differences between states and for charities that operate across borders that obviously increases their costs. Um, they have to go through different regulatory regimes. Uh, and we know that um, our friends in the Accounting Standards Board have been doing some work around um, some consistent uh, reporting that could be used ac across the different state jurisdictions. Um, we support that work of the AASB. And we think that's really important to, um, particularly for the smaller not-for-profits, who just don't have, and smaller charities don't have the resources. If more of their time is spent on uh, complying with fundraising, differing fundraising rules, or complying with differing reporting requirements between states, that's less time they have to delivering their services. And we're going through a, um, a volunteer drought. If you look at some of the work from Andrew Lee, the, ship, the minister, a lot of charities are really struggling to get volunteers. And if their time has been taken up with um, uh, duplicative or unnecessary regulatory uh, requirements, that means less time they can put towards their actual reason for being the services they deliver. Now, uh, the submission itself is, um, well, it's fairly, it's a reasonable sort of, like, what, 16-odd pages long. Uh, is there anything else that you want to highlight in the, in the limited amount of time we have remaining? Well, I know a topic that's uh, close to your heart is around um, climate disclosure standards and who sets those standards. So I know that's a topic that you, uh, you've been uh, you, you, interested you might, in. I'm asking you the questions here, Mr. Ward. <laughs> oh, God. Well, <laughs> no, well, well, I suppose on, on that particular one, so we know that the Accounting Standards Board got some funding in the October budget to do, uh, help on the, the interpretation and delivery of sustainability standards. But that only funding ended 30 June. So... In the absence of an establishment of a, of a dedicated sustainability standards board, uh, we think that funding should be rolled over and that um, so that uh, the AASB can contribute to Australia's contribution to the, the development of international sustainability standards. And obviously, as you, I, I don't know, uh, there's obviously a strong position of you, but um, that you've expressed publicly is that... Um, there should be a separate sustainability standards board, which we we support as well. I think it's uh, it's an interesting scenario where you have something for an audit audit standard setting. You've got something for accounting standard setting, and you've also got this other thing. You've got this other thing emerging that also crosses over with ASX corporate governance uh, recommendations as well. Um, which can be a, a more theoretical discussion at a later stage, but you've got uh, you've got documents intended to be um, legal legally backed, and in other 
extra legal documentation that cover the same same territories for the entities that'll be complying with sustainability standards. It is yeah. um, it's an interesting issue in terms of how it all works, but that, that can, that's for another time. If punters listening to this particular uh, podcast uh, want to uh, learn more about the pre-budget submission, which has got some stuff on tax in there, which we haven't covered on this occasion, uh, where do they find it? Have you got well, I think just, just go to cpaaustralia.com.au. Uh, we have an, a federal, we have a budget page, a dedicated budget page, and uh, our submission is there. And then as we move into the federal budget on the 9th of May, 7.30 p.m., you can set your watch by that, that uh, we'll, we'll be having more content on our web, on our page about the budget. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that closer to the budget, Tom. Uh, yes, you can start putting dates in your diary for that now. More than <laughs> dates in your diary. The treasurer will stand up at 7.30pm Canberra time on the 9th of May. Set your time by that. Okay. Uh, I've been talking to Gavin Ord, uh, who's a, from CBA Australia. He is a, one of the senior policy advisors who looks after um, a range of, uh, range of areas, including small business. Thanks for joining me again, Gavin. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure.